Hi, Pastor John here again. We're all familiar with the quote Jesus makes in the garden in Luke 22. He was asking the Father to let the torture of the crucifixion pass him by. And he said, Not my will, but yours be done. Now we're all familiar with it, but do we understand the scope of its importance and how it can change our lives? Jesus meant it when he said he was willing to abandon his will for God's. Let's see how a better understanding of God's will might have changed the life of one of Judah's first kings, Rehoboam. We have a longtime friend visiting us, Steve Crouchshore from Georgia. Good to see you, Steve. I'd like you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 12. Somebody put out an errant note this week saying we were only going through the first 12 verses. So if you see that person, tell him he was wrong. It was, it was me. <laughs> so we're going to go through the first 20 verses today. And let me talk to you about Luke 22, really familiar passage, Jesus in the garden. We all know what's happened. But there's that moment when Jesus goes to the Father and says, let this cup pass from me. We can relate to that, can't we? This moment that you're about to face a hardship, you're about to endure some suffering, and you don't want to go through it. I think Jesus does this to show us that, that he knows what we're feeling when we go through trials. But he says, he says this phrase, and, and say it with me, not my will, but yours be done. It's really significant. We know it. We're familiar with it. But are we? Are we familiar with how it can impact your life? We're going to see how it might have impacted uh, one of Israel's first three kings, Rehoboam, uh, in his story today. The title of our sermon is Rehoboam. So let me give you some background before we get to our passage. Um, Solomon became king after David. We all know about David. Solomon was the wisest man ever to live. But in his later years, he turned away from God. He started doing some really weird stuff. He married foreign women. Of course, he started doing that right at the beginning, and that was kind of the first sign that there was a problem. He married Pharaoh's daughter, and he bought horses from Egypt. And those were two specific things that God had warned the kings of Israel not to do. Well, he did those, but in later life, he married a lot of them. He worshipped foreign gods. He set up uh, places of sacrifice and worship on the hills around Jerusalem. When we read uh, in, uh, in 1 Kings that, that uh, Solomon built these high places, they are directly in sight of the Temple Mount and about a mile and a half away. So Solomon did some pretty weird stuff at the end. And, and as a result of all that, a prophecy goes forth over a, a well-liked man named Jeroboam, uh, and he was in charge of Solomon's labor force. And the, the prophecy was that God is going to take the kingdom from Solomon's son. Not from Solomon, but from Solomon's son. But he's not going to take all of it. He's just going to take part of it. And so the, the, the kingdom is going to be divided. And Rehoboam, is, Solomon's son, is going to keep one tribe. And Jeroboam will lead the other ten tribes. Now, this is divided up between north and south. Jeroboam is going to be king over Israel, and God will bless him. But the prophet gives 
Jeroboam this warning. It's very specific. 1 Kings 11.38 And if you, Jeroboam, will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I, God, will be with you and will build you a sure house. Literally, he's saying, if you do this, if you do this right, there's going to be a dynasty that follows you. As I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. So as for Solomon's son, God says this, and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. So he says, Jeroboam, if, if you listen to what I tell you to do, this is going to be fantastic. And Meanwhile, while we're doing that, Rehoboam is going to have a handful of trouble. So God says Israel is going to be split in two. Ten tribes will go to Jeroboam. They're going to be called Israel. There's a lot of confusion over that as you're reading through the Old Testament. Sometimes we're talking about the northern kingdom. Sometimes we're talking about the nation. you really got to look at the context. But the rest of it's going to go to Rehoboam. And as we'll soon learn, it will be called Judah. So Solomon hears about this prophecy. He's still alive. He's still king. And so he wants to kill Jeroboam. Isn't, isn't that typical? God's going to do something with or through somebody, and we try to get rid of that, hoping that God will somehow not be able to do what he says he's going to do. We, we work so hard to minimize our God. So Solomon wants to kill Jeroboam. Jeroboam flees to Egypt, and in his last years, Solomon is not only worshiping foreign gods, but he's really hard on the Hebrews. Solomon dies. Rehoboam's going to take his throne. He's going to be the new king. And Rehoboam's name means to enlarge the people. It means sets them free. So that's kind of promising. We know God puts value in names. We know that sometimes he gives an indication of what that that person is going to be like. And all of that brings us up to our passage today. And we're going to see, we're going to see if Rehoboam lives up to his name. So at this point, Rehoboam is 41 years old, and I'm going to let you decide if he acts like a 41-year-old man. So we have three events that shape Rehoboam's reign that are going to shape how he's going to be king. They are the request of the leaders of Israel, found in 1 Kings 12, 1 through 11. Then we will see the rejection of the leaders of Israel in verses 12 through 15. And then we'll see the response of the leaders of Israel in verses 16 through 20. So let's take a look at this request that comes from the leaders of Israel. Verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now Shechem plays a very important part in the history of Israel. We don't hear much about it today. Um, it's just a little bit south by about a mile and a half of a city called Nablus uh, in kind of central Israel. But Shechem was Abraham's first stop after coming into Canaan. You can see that in Genesis 12. It's where Dinah was raped, which set off a whole series of events that were very tragic, Genesis 34. Uh, it's the place where the covenant was renewed in the book of Joshua. And Joshua and Joseph are buried in Shechem, Joshua 24. And it's where Abimelech reigns from in Judges chapter 9. So now Rehoboam's coronation is going to occur in Shechem. And so far everything seems fine. 
Solomon's dead. Rehoboam's going to be made king. Shechem's kind of the capital. Uh, but the people of Israel feel like Solomon has overlooked them. They've had a rough go the last couple of years. Feel like Solomon have not only overlooked them, but has overworked them. They're eager to see how this new king is going to treat them. And, of course, we understand the new, the anticipation we have with a new leader, right? There's a lot of hope. I mean, all the politicians make all these promises about what they're going to do when they're in offices and everything. And then they enter the office, and the first day we're always like, okay, this is fantastic. And usually by somewhere around the middle of the second day, we go, oh, <laughs> it's the same old thing. Well, there's an anticipation that something new may be happening here. And in verse 2, it says, As soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, now this would be the tribe of Ephraim, uh, right around there, the region of Shechem, as soon as the son of Nebat heard of it, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. We're talking about Jeroboam. Then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. So Jeroboam ran from Solomon, and now he feels safe enough to come home where he was well-liked, he was well-received. He said, well, okay, the guy that wanted to kill me is gone. I'll go home. Verse 3, And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, now we're talking about the tribes of Israel, and the ones that feel that their hard work has been used to complete a lot of big projects in the south of Israel, so what they're saying is, you know, all this stuff we're doing, all the taxes, everything they're collecting, all this work, we're, we're cutting down timbers, we're doing this. It's all going to the south. These are God's people. And we see, we see what Solomon's reign has done to the nation. There's division. And, you know, I, I'm not saying that their, their complaint wasn't valid. As a matter of fact, our most dangerous points in life are when our complaints are valid, aren't they? Because we feel self-entitled. We feel self-righteous. We feel like somebody owes us something. When somebody says, oh, that's not fair, that appeals to us. So it was true. A lot of the taxes, a lot of the natural resources and everything were going to projects in the South. And these people are upset about it. And they've chosen Jeroboam to be their spokesman. Now this is significant. They like him. They trust him. They say, go in, go in and talk to this new guy and see what's going to happen. And in verse 4 they say, your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us and we will serve you. Say, look, just treat us right and everything will be okay. And if you, you don't have to read too far in between the lines and go, uh-oh. Rehoboam's not even crowned king yet. And he finds himself in the middle of a political conundrum. Isn't that what's happening? These people are saying this. These people are saying this. Who are you going to listen to? So God's given the Hebrews this country. It is strategically located. It's literally the crossroads of the world for their time. It has abundant natural resources. And God... God has come down to the temple and lives among them. He's traveled with them in the wilderness for 40 years. They've seen miracles. They've seen signs. They've seen wonders. They've been delivered miraculously. Been incredible blessings on these people. And then they've been given this land. 
And their king, Solomon, turned away. Turned away from the God that had given him all these blessings. And now Solomon's gone. And God's people are fighting. They're fighting over who does what. Who gets what. Now it's just the early stages, so it's all fairly civil. But it's how these things start. Well, did you know that we've been working really hard at this and we spent a lot of time and energy? What happens to all that time and energy? What happens to all our efforts? It's going to get big real quick. Rehoboam has to pick up on Solomon's legacy and Solomon's legacy at this particular point doesn't look very nice. It's not very attractive. So Rehoboam, again, this is early, uh, it, some things are going right. He makes a very wise decision. He, you know, I don't want to act too hastily here. In verse 5, he said to them, go away for three days and then come again to me. So the people went away. Rehoboam saying, I need some time to think about this. Uh, uh, I, I just got here. <laughs> you know, I've got some chariot leg and I need to get some rest. So things are beginning to get interesting. Verse 6, then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer these people? Now, Rehoboam has an incredible resource at his disposal. And, you know, we, we need to think through this a little bit. He has the men who advised the wisest man in the world. He has, he has the wisest man in the world's aides and counselors. These older men stood with Solomon who built the richest, most powerful nation the world had ever seen. They were there. They went through it. Their experience and input would be absolutely invaluable as Rehoboam takes the throne and goes forward. And in verse 7, we find out what, the, what they say to him. They say, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them, and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. So Solomon's advisors, his cadre, of his, his staff, describe the essence of servant leadership. Isn't that what we're looking at here? You know, the leader serves those who he's leading, and they in turn serve, serve him. This is, and, and of course... They're saying, look, if, if you take care of these people, they'll take care of you. You know, it, again, it's the essence of servant leadership. Of course, the opposite is true. If you take advantage of these people and abuse these people, well, you can expect the same type of treatment back. So this is on the verge of Rehoboam making his very first mistake because he refuses that counsel. Look, verse 8. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. Now, young, young is a relative term here. We know Rehoboam's 41 years old. But what the author wants us to see is that there's a new generation stepping into leadership. They would have a different perspective on things. Somebody say amen. I mean, isn't that what we're watching 
today. They would have a new perspective on things. They, they would have new ideas. They would have maybe different values. I mean, we've already seen the values of Israel change with Solomon building temples to Baal and all those nasty gods. Well, this generation is excited. They're energized. They're looking forward to playing their part on the world stage. The one thing, the one thing they don't have is experience. As far as Rehoboam is concerned, they have none. So in verse 9, he says to his buds, his pals, people he played on the playground at school with, people he grew up with, people he went to college with, people who were in the dorm with him, the people that walked the streets with him. So he says to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us. Now notice, notice that he abandoned the counsel of the older men before he went to the younger men. Already decided the older men can't help him. They have nothing of value. And I've got to tell you something, brothers and sisters. We find ourselves in that position today. The old ways are bad. The new ways are good. The old ideas don't work. We need new ideas. We're watching it happen on the political stage. I've got a new idea. We can't do it that way. We can't do it this way. That's, that, this needs to be changed. That needs to be... We're watching it happen culturally, aren't we? We're, we're abandoning the biblical model which says the older teach the younger. Meanwhile, we're wrapped up in a culture that is striving as hard as they can to look and feel younger. I want to be like them. We all fall for that, don't we? See, that's what's happening in Israel. And as, as, as old as everything is, there's not much new going on. So he abandons the counsel of the older people. They don't have anything of any value. This is Rehoboam's pride rising to the surface, is it not? We've got to be careful that we don't become equally as prideful. Oh, Yeah. I'll tell you something. We've got some great ideas. They've been working for centuries. They should work again as we go forward. Maybe, maybe Rehoboam thinks that he's such a great guy that the strength of his personality is going to carry him forward. Or maybe, maybe he's convinced that because he's king, everybody's just going to do what he does, fall at his beck and call. And he thinks maybe all that will make up for a lack of experience. Verse 10, And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus you shall speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, and you will lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. These are idioms from the day. When he talks about the whips, they have a picture of whips that are used to keep slaves in line. When he talks about scorpions, what they would see is whips with little bits of bone and glass in them. You think that was bad? What do you see the whips I use on you? Now these guys tell him that he's got to be tougher. 
not softer than his father. If you're soft, they're going to get over on you. He has to show them that he's no pushover. If he wants to rule his land, he has to do it with an iron fist. These people need to know who's in charge. So Rehoboam goes to two groups for help and for input. That was a good decision. One group of seasoned veterans and another group of his buddies. Men who may be more impressed with the fact that the king is coming to them for advice than they are with the welfare of God's people. Or maybe they're seeing this as, well, here's my chance to get into the inner circle. I can be of influence. I can have impact. The king's coming to me. Meanwhile, Rehoboam has to think about some stuff. Now, this request has been made, and the request really is, what kind of king are you going to be? And now he has to decide. But we've already seen that he's kind of made up his mind. And that takes us to our, our second element of, of Rehoboam's reign, the rejection of the leaders. So Rehoboam rejects the seasoned leaders of Israel, and, and look what happens, verse 12. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, come to me again the third day. Now, Jeroboam's got influence. He's got power. He, he tried to run, but now he's back, and he's a leader. People are looking to him for guidance. The northern tribes want to know how Rehoboam's going to treat them, what kind of king he's going to be. And the big question is, now that the king, the, the proposed king, has some time to think, is does Rehoboam know, does he realize that he's at a crucial juncture in his life and the history of Israel. This is not just a matter of, of what I'm going to say to the people. This is a matter of what type of man I'm going to be as we go forward. Is he aware of the fact that he's standing at a crossroads? So many times, brothers and sisters, we are standing at the crossroads, and because we're not paying attention to God, we're not paying attention to his word, we don't realize that we're at a crossroads. The world will tell you, oh, take it one day at a time. It's not bad advice. I mean, if your situation is overwhelming you, one day at a time is not a bad idea. But when you're talking about the future, when you're talking about your future, when you're talking about the future of a nation, you can't take these things trivially. We can't take major decisions in our life trivially. Rehoboam would have known about the prophecies spoken over Jeroboam father would have told him. Rehoboam would have known that the promise was made to Jeroboam that if he follows the word of God and obeys what he's saying, that God will give him ten-twelfths of the kingdom. So Rehoboam should have known that the decision that he's about to make is crucial. Now listen to me carefully. We'll talk about this a little bit more in a little bit. But prophecy is always a warning. Oh, we love to watch these YouTube things where the guy says, oh, this is going to happen and that's going to happen and everything. I, we, we don't really see that in Scripture. What we see is God sends prophets to warn people that their actions are going in the wrong direction. And we've seen several cases, several kings, who are prophesied over, who change their behavior, and the prophecy changes. So they're a warning to repent. When this prophecy goes over Jeroboam, it's a warning to say, look, be careful how you act because this nation is drifting from God the Father. 
and you have an opportunity to repent. Rehoboam has that opportunity. He's not recognizing it. So Jeroboam and the northern tribes come and go, so, so what are you going to do? The king answered, now, now, before we get to that, understand this, because it's really easy for us right now to go, oh, those terrible southern tribes. But we heard last week that God puts kings on their throne. So, this is an indication of how far Israel has slid. Okay? Because there's no regard for this coming king. All Israel wants to know is, what am I going to get? Yeah. So, be careful whose side we take here. It's interesting, isn't it? Verse 13, the king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I'll discipline you with scorpions. Rehoboam's not even creative enough to come up with his own words. He just says what they told him. It sounded good. Biblical scholar R.D. Nelson says, Rehoboam chooses slogans over wisdom. Does that describe our political scene today? Machismo over servanthood. I'll just let that hang there for a few moments. What's happened here is that Rehoboam has listened to his pals, a small group of people, and he's ignored the entire nation. God's nation. His nation. His people. So the king, verse 15, did not listen to his people. Why not? For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke to Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now, God's sovereignty is put on display here, but we also understand, and you know, there's this age-old dialogue, argument, debate that goes over God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And what we see here is both of them. And we need to recognize that there's a tension in Scripture between God's sovereignty, which God is sovereign over everything. But there's also the depiction of human responsibility. We have to respond to what he says. How does that work? I don't have the slightest idea. You know, and the more I think about it, I've got to be honest with you, I, I studied this for years, and for a long time I was on one side, and I went, oh, this only makes sense to me. I mean, you hear that. It doesn't make sense that God would do things like that. And then I was over on the other side, and, and the problem was over here on this side, there was damage all over the place. So, you know, when, when you're on this side, and you're, and you're saying, uh, oh, you know, I, I get to decide everything, you become the victim of every situation you're in, somebody else's decision. Yeah, there's nothing to learn here. These people just made bad decisions. When you're over here on this side, everything's black and white. Oh, life is easy. Just don't do that anymore. That's pretty easy to live in until you have teenagers. <laughs> Amen? Oh, wait a minute. Maybe everything's not so black and white. I remember my dad looking at me going, I don't have the slightest idea what you're thinking. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, of course he doesn't know what I'm thinking. He's too old. And the, the older my dad got, the smarter he got. <laughs> yes. 
So there's a tension between God's sovereignty. Yes, God said this would happen. And yes, it is happening. But we've already learned from Israel's history that if a king changes his direction, if he goes back and begins doing the things that, that God tells him to do, that, that God will bless the nation. So Rehoboam's rejection of the people, now they're in the middle of it, leads to the response of the leaders, the third element of Rehoboam's reign. Verse 16, And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. Now I'm going to give you, there's a lot of, there's a lot of innuendo and a lot of inflection in here. I'm going to give you the Kavakis translation of this. Nothing here for us. We're going home. But we're not going to be part of you anymore. We're done. We're not paying your taxes. We're not going to do your work anymore. We're not turning over our resources so you can finish your projects. Look around you, son of Solomon. See how you do without us. So I think Rehoboam has been the victim of his own pride. But I believe Israel is as well. Verse 17, But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Now, Rehoboam's in the middle of a political crisis, civil war, heavy-handed handling of the northern tribes doesn't work. He needs their productivity. He needs their resources. He's about to lose it. If you've ever been to Israel, once you hit Jerusalem and go south, there's not much there. There are some resources down below the Dead Sea and around that area, but that's about it. So he's losing all of the resources that he needs to run the kingdom. And so now, now he tries diplomacy. Oh, maybe I need to back up a few steps. But he makes another mistake in who he sends. Verse 18, then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over forced labor. This guy was not a good guy. He was not well liked. And he's the one that would be in charge of making everybody work so hard. He would be the guy making the whips with the bits of stone and glass in them. And all Israel stoned that man to death with stones. And now, now Rehoboam is still in Shechem, and there's a riot, right? The wrong guy's gone out, said the wrong thing to the wrong people, and all of a sudden, the, the, the crowd kills him. And now Rehoboam has to run. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. He has to run for his life. I didn't realize this was so serious. Don't they know I'm the king? Not yet. Verse 19. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And in one swift moment of pride, Rehoboam undoes what 80 years of work and worship of God between David and Solomon have done in Israel. The nation of Israel is divided. Ten tribes to the north, two to the south. Northern tribes are going to be called Israel. Southern tribes are going to go by Judah. And everything is happening just as God had predicted. Verse 20, And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. 
response to the leaders of the nation of Israel is swift and decisive and devastating. And Jeroboam becomes king over the northern kingdom. Now God has told, he's told Jeroboam that he's going to be blessed when he becomes king over Israel. God has already said, do this, just listen to me, do what I tell you to do, and this is going to be amazing. Is he going to do it? We'll find out next week. So we've seen these three events that shape Rehoboam's reign. The request of the leaders, it's amazing. How are you going to lead? The last king was cruel. It was hard on us. Rehoboam clearly didn't understand that he was at a crossroads, how crucial his decision was going to be. Maybe he thought everybody would fall in line. Or maybe, maybe, and tell me if, if, you, if you can relate to this, maybe Rehoboam thought if he was cruel enough, if he was angry enough, they'd really go, oh, oh, oh we didn't understand. Uh, we, we, I, yeah. Does this... Does this describe every argument you've ever had with somebody close to you? <laughs> when emotions become inflamed and we think we're right and the other person's wrong, not only do we think we're right and the other person's wrong, but we think we have to impress them with how right we are. And, and, and so we get angry. And the decibels raise a little bit. We get a little red in the face. Blood pressure goes up a little. And they don't react the way we thought they would. So we get a little angrier. We get a little redder. Blood pressure goes up a little bit more. And somewhere along the line, we've convinced ourselves that if we're just angry enough, loud enough, the other person will go, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't recognize how wise you were. And now I realize how dumb I am. And I'll just do whatever you want me to do. How many of you have gotten to that point in an argument? Yeah, no hands. Me neither. <laughs> I mean, I've had to learn this from experience. I, I mean, you've you, you got to get a hold of that anger way down in here before it gets up here. Otherwise, it's just going to go bad. Rehoboam makes his mistake. It's a freshman mistake. But he makes it spectacularly. Whatever his motivation was, he was naive to think that as a young king, people would probably blindly follow in line. He was naive enough to think that just because he had the title, that everybody would believe him and respect him. Then we saw the rejection of the leaders. Rehoboam using these pithy sayings and, and bluster to tell folks he's going to be a strong leader. He's got no experience. He doesn't realize that this is his first test as a king. And he's not doing real well. He has no history. He has no goodwill built up. He's done nothing so far, but he wants everything. My first act is going to be to make sure that I'm in control of everything. And then we saw the response to the leaders. They, they bristle. And ultimately, there's division. Now, and, and, and then, and, you know, we talked about this a little bit, didn't we? Whose fault is the division? Oh, it's Rehoboam's fault. He shouldn't have been so nasty. Everybody's at fault. There's no right and wrong in this. Everybody's so eager to make sure that their presence is known, that their rights are protected. Ooh. 
That's a little painful, isn't it? And there's nobody, nobody in this scenario saying, well, I don't know, what does God's Word say? You see what happens when the Word becomes secondary instead of primary? Then, then our personalities, our sense of self-determination, our sense of self-righteousness, our sense of entitlement begin to rise up and take over. Nobody in this scenario is saying, wait a minute, is this how David ran the kingdom? What, what, what does God call us to do in a situation like this? Everybody's at fault. Everybody's wrong. We'll see how that works out in a few more verses as we get into next week's look at Jeroboam. Rehoboam wants to lead but not serve. He's stubborn, he's arrogant, he's naive. But Jeroboam and Israel are stubborn too. Not willing to accept the king that God placed on the throne. Okay, so that, that looks a little bit different than maybe the first couple times you've read through this passage, doesn't it? What do we learn from this? Well, there, there, there are a bunch of practical lessons. One of them is that the biblical pattern, I mentioned it earlier, the old teach younger. This has been abandoned, ignored here. Rehoboam allowed the whole kingdom to be influenced by people who had no experience and had no wisdom. So that's a good lesson. It's not always applicable. It certainly wasn't with Paul and Timothy. So we really need to revert to God's word even in those situations. So we also learn that division comes when both sides dig in, insist that they're correct. Because all that really is, and, and take this down to a personal level, and tell me if this isn't true. All that sort of argument, all that sort of division is, is a struggle over who's in control. And a confession that it's certainly not God in this situation. It must be me. Now what do we learn about God? I love the practical lessons, but you know, the reason we're in this passage here is to learn about the character and nature of God, His plan of redemption, and, and how we can see that in the Old Testament. Well, here's what we learned. God was very explicit about what would happen. And then it did. It happened exactly like God said. So was Rehoboam the victim of a puppet master just because God prophesied that it would come to be? No. Rehoboam was a victim of his own foolishness. Maybe that was part of God's prophecy. Rehoboam was going to act foolish. He wasn't stuck there. We already know that. Rehoboam was warned. And, and that's what prophecy does. It warns us. It cautions us against disobedience. But in order, in order to follow God, and here comes the lesson for all of us. In order to follow God, in order to walk in His blessings, in order to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, as Paul says to us in Ephesians, there are times when we have to battle our nature and struggle to embrace God's character and nature. This is a real battle. Oh yes, we're created, we're new creatures, we've got a new heart, all that stuff is true. But those are promises for a later day. And today, we struggle with who we are and what we are. 
God has given us his word to help us through that struggle. And the only question we ever have to answer is whether or not we're going to read it. Of course, once we read it, then we've got another question. Are we going to obey it? Are we going to do what it tells us to do? Rehoboam had that opportunity. He knew the kingdom was going to be torn from him. He had the opportunity to repent and change his ways. There are times when we have to battle our own character and nature and consciously adopt his will and obey his word, even though it looks like that might be tough. I mean, isn't that the lesson we learn from Jesus in the garden? Not my will, but yours. To embrace God's will, we have to lay down our own. It's pretty easy when times are going good. When we're experiencing God's blessings. It's really hard when we're in the middle of a battle. So, what we've got to ask ourselves, what are we battling for? What are we fighting for? Am I fighting for my pride? Am I fighting for my reputation? Am I fighting for the things that I want? The things I think I need? The things I deserve? Or am I fighting for holiness? Am I fighting for my sanctification? Am I fighting to be molded and shaped into the character and nature of God? Not my will, Father, but yours be done. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you give us this clear picture of your son surrendering to something that looks horrible, something that looks impossible. Oh, Lord, let us embrace this lesson that in him it can be done. Father, you've given us your spirit to guide us and counsel us and direct us. And Lord, we confess there are times when we'd rather not listen to him. Help us, O Lord, to submit to the leading of your spirit and the beauty of your gospel. Help us, O Lord, to walk in the fullness of your grace and blessing. That we might not be a nation divided before you. That we might stand in union with your Son for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for joining us this morning. We'll be back with Jeroboam next week. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on Sermon Audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on Giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.